بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد المرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد وأنتم الأعلون إن كنتم مؤمنين صدق الله العظيم My dear friends uh, this evening inshallah we'll be looking at the life of a, a very interesting individual Somebody who I would say is my, if you can have favorites, it's my second favorite scholar from history. And my first has to be Imam Ghazali. And after Imam Ghazali, it has to be most, I have to be probably most inspired by Abdurrahman ibn al-Jawzi. Abu al-Faraj Abdurrahman ibn al-Jawzi. Again, he was a scholar that has connections with Baghdad, just like Abdul Qadir Jilani. Rahimahullah has connections with Baghdad and so does Imam Ghazali have connections with Baghdad. What's the most interesting thing is that it was after Imam Ghazali was born in 450 Hijri. Imam Abdul Qadir Jilani Abdul Qadir Jilani is born uh, around the time that uh, 480 Hijri, 470 Hijri actually, 470 Hijri. Uh, Abdul Qadir Jilani rahim, uh, rahimahullah then moves into Baghdad around the time that Imam Ghazali departs from there for his 10 or 11 years in seclusion. And Ibn al-Jawzi just uh, is older. Ibn al-Jawzi is uh, actually younger. He comes after Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani. But uh, both of them are contemporaries in a sense. So that's another example. Ibn al-Jawzi is another great example of a reformer, a renovator of the faith, a reviver of the faith. And he's been most noted for his uh, profound scholarship. An amazing, absolutely amazing scholar. I could probably read his books all day if I had the time. Because he's just very candid in his approach to things in the way he discusses things. He's known as a prolific writer. He was a wonderful orator. Uh, he used to have thousands of people in every gathering of his. And he was a master of the Quran, uh, Quranic studies, hadith, hadith uh, tafsir, and also history and literary criticism. So he was also a wonderful writer, known for his uh, literature and his style in writing. He was born in 508 Hijri, 508 Hijri, so that's three years after Imam Ghazali died. Baghdad, mashallah, produced some really, really impressive individuals that have preserved the faith for us. So much of our, a lot of the knowledge that we have today, a lot of the great books that we have today, somehow they're connected to Baghdad. Uh, Baghdad, Damascus, in the, early, in the early centuries. Because you have to remember, Baghdad was also the home of the Abbasid Caliphs after uh, Damascus was the Darul Khilafah during the time of the Umayyads. So now, uh, he's born in 508 Hijri. He's 38 years younger than Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani. His father died. I mean, this is a very interesting story because his father died when he was young. His father died when he was young and his mother sent him to study with one of the great scholars of the time. His name was, he was a muhaddith. Uh, Ibn Nasir, his name was. So he went to study with him. So at an early age, he memorized the Quran. He memorized the entire Quran. 
and then started studying Qira'ah, the study of reading, Quranic reading, uh, Hadith. He studied calligraphy as well. He studied calligraphy as well. And he himself says about his childhood. I'm going to be quoting a lot from him directly he's because he's one of those few scholars who've written a lot about themselves. Ghazali is another one. Suyuti is another one. And Ibn al-Jawzi is another one. And that's why uh, you don't have to speculate what they would have been doing or what they did or whatever because it's very clear what they wrote. And the reason I like uh, Ibn al-Jawzi a, a lot is because he's very confessional. He is very clear about the way his thought was about something before, how it changed, personal uh, dilemmas that he had to go through. So he himself says about his very young age, he says, I recall clearly that I was admitted to primary school at six. Boys much older than me were my classmates. In those times, I mean, you didn't have to be of a certain age to be in a class. I mean, you went by um, ability in those days and you still do in many places, right? I, did, I do not recall if I ever spent my time playing or laughing with the other boys. So he was different. From that time he was different. Instead of watching the jugglers perform, who frequently held their shows in the field in front of the mosque where I studied, I would attend lectures on hadith. Now that's today saying that instead of playing with your iPads and the phones and all of these things that our kids play with nowadays and are addicted to and they cry and shriek and and tear things, you know, and, and break things when it's taken away from them, when their time is up. So instead of doing all that, they'll be studying. No, I want a book on hadith. How abnormal does that sound today? It's like a dream, subhanAllah. It's like a dream. Ajib. So he, that, that, that is exactly, the, the recreation in those days was the jugglers, the clowns, people who would do a few tricks on the road. That, that, that is essentially what entertainment was all, all about. Right? SubhanAllah, I mean, we can entertain ourselves to death today. Right? There's enough of it at every level. He says, whatever hadith or biographical accounts of the Prophet ﷺ were related in the lectures, I memorized them. Say, ajib memory, an amazing memory. I would just memorize all of that. And then I would write them down on reaching home. So he's not even taking notes while he's studying. He's just memorizing everything, going home and then taking notes. What a wonderful way to study. Other boys would spend their time playing along the banks of the river. Subhanallah, if, if those days can come back. You got a bank of a river bank here somewhere, you know. Um, but I would invariably be sitting down with a book in my hand in a corner and I would just read it from cover to cover. I was always so eager to attend the class on time that I was often out of breath upon reaching the school before the lectures began. It happened not infrequently that I had nothing to eat the whole day. So there were times I would just be in class, class, one class after the other and I wouldn't eat. But I'm thankful to Allah that I've never had any occasion to be grateful to anybody else in this regard. Which means I would never have to beg anybody for food. Subhanallah. Now this sets the scene for this great man. What did he do in his life? And you know, we've had millions of scholars. We've had thousands, loads. But there's a few that stick in everybody's mind. And still in every generation their memory lives on because of certain works that they produced because of the ikhlas and this diligence that they had so this is what you get out of it what does he get out of missing his play when he's young and reading books from cover to cover what does he get out of it that somebody how many years after we're talking about 
he was born in uh, 1100, uh, uh, basically 1114. 1114. So we're talking about 900 years after him. Because it's 2000 now. So we're talking about, you know, the world has moved, uh, you know, the Gregorian uh, calendar is uh, nearly half over, you know, doubled that since then. We're talking about 900 years afterwards. And in Milton Keynes, we're speaking about Ibn Josie, somebody who died 900 years ago. He had intense enthusiasm for learning. His enthusiasm for learning was just intense. And also for propagating hadith. He wrote so much, he wrote so much during his life that in those days they used to use the reed pens, the pens that you had to make yourself. So you got like a cane or a piece of, like a miswak. You've seen a miswak, right? Yeah. Um, and it's not a miswak, but it's made of cane or reed or something. And then you chipped off the edge and made it into a nib. It's like a calligraphy pen. And that's what he wrote with. You dip them into ink and then you write and then you dip it into ink and you write again. And those shavings of his were kept. He kept those shavings. So when he passed away, those shavings were enough to boil the water for his ghusl, for his bath. That's how many shavings. So can you imagine how much he wrote? He used to read whatever he could get his hands on. I wonder what he'd say about the internet today. <laughs> Except that it's ilmun la yanfa, most of it. It's a redundant knowledge. It just takes you from one to the next. Endless supply of knowledge. But that's why there's a dua of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, which says, O oh Allah, grant me beneficial knowledge. And O oh Allah, protect me from knowledge that is useless. That is non-beneficial. We should all read that dua because we all have this as a challenge in front of us of just wasting lots and lots of time on YouTube and other places online. And that's the best, maybe, you know, that's not even half the story. Anyway, uh, and he was, he was very fortunate that he wasn't in some kind of um, outlying area. He was in Baghdad, Darul Khilafah. And mashallah, the, the libraries there were well stocked. So he really made use of these libraries. He really made use of these libraries. Well stocked libraries of Baghdad. That's so why he writes again in his Sayyidul Khatir. He writes it about himself. He says, I may state here my own cast of mind. I am never tired of reading books and my joy knows no bound whenever I find a new book. I know exactly how that feels, subhanAllah. Though I don't get to read as much as he does, but subhanAllah. It would appear to be an exaggeration if I said that I have gone through 20,000 books during my student days. 20,000 books during my student days. And this is not Harry Potter books. This is not fiction only we're speaking about, if at all. We're talking about some serious uh, 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 non-fiction books that you're learning things from. And those books are more difficult to read than fiction books, right? Because the story just carries you through. But when you have to read non-fiction, it's a study. So that's 20,000 books he, re he read. I came to know, and you see, what is the benefit of, what is the benefit of somebody who reads 20,000 books? 20,000 books of the muhaddithin, mufassirin, the books on Arabic literature, the books on Arabic grammar, the books on Arabic uh, of Islamic history or the history of the world in general. When you read 20,000 books on those subjects, right, this is what you get out of it. And there's no doubt you'll get this. I came to know of the courage, large-heartedness, erudition, uh, the great memories, the piety, the eagerness of prayer, 
cherished by the scholars of the past. I learned, this is what I gleaned from these books. This is what I received. Which I could not have learnt without reading these books. I could not have learnt without reading these books. My study of books in those days also revealed to me the shallow knowledge of scholars in our times. And he's speaking about his 5th and 6th century. So what do we speak about today? Allahu Akbar. Right. And the dull spirits of students today. We don't have any students today. You know, we hardly have students for the, for the amount of students they had in those days. We hardly have nothing. And he's complaining about his time. And I think it's for in this spirit that we're also covering his story today. And the story of Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani later today. And, and so on and so forth. My aim is to cover some of our major scholars in our history. So that inshallah the ummah can understand what kind of great people we have had. And you know, we're a tradition. Muslims are a tradition that we look to our past as much as we look to our future. And we are guided by them. And where we lose is where, when we're in a vacuum. When we think, because that is the most depressing state you can bring yourself in, is when you, don't, when you know nothing about your past. Because the state is depressing. When we're, especially at this point in time, we're in a bit of a low. We're in a bit of an ebb. You know, we're in a bit of uh, a low kind of season uh, in, in the history of things when we're being attacked from all around and there doesn't seem to be much hope. There's Islamophobia which is rife everywhere, being challenged day in and day out. A lot of the, the Muslim ummah, and uh, unfortunately the Muslim countries around the world are on fire. And you know, we've got these major problems. If you don't know about your history, then you're going to be extremely depressed if you care about your religion. And that's why it's important to learn about these things because they tell us how these kind of challenges were fared by the people of the past. In terms of, um, he started writing from a very young age. And you know, we have, subhanAllah, our problem today is that we just don't have enough inspiration and guidance, direction uh, for our young people. We've got talent. We've got huge, because same kind of human beings are coming here. It's just that their entire talent is being directed elsewhere. Um, my son, who just completed his GCS, he's doing his A-levels. I know the amount of time that he puts into his work, without me having to tell him much. And then at the end of all of that, and he got some really good grades in GCSE, uh, but at the same time, he's also doing an alim course. So he's literally studying from before 8 in the morning, till about 12 at night, coming and preparing and everything like that. I know that, right? Now I'm looking at him and I'm seeing that most of his study is behind his maths and his science and you know all the other subjects, which again are useful subjects and we need to have some of them. But it's only a minority of his time which he's able to spend behind his alim course. Because the school demands so much, the academy demands so much. So now, our greatest brains today are spending huge amounts of time on this, but they're not spending enough time on religion or religious studies. So when are we going to have the Ibn al-Jawzis and the Ghazalis and Jilalis? Because not enough of our time. But now it makes a lot of sense that a person like uh, Shah Waliullah of uh, uh, the, the great scholar of Delhi of India uh, just about 200 and something years ago, he started teaching some high-level science, Islamic sciences at the age of 16 when his father passed away. And I'm thinking, how, does he, how is he able to do that? But he's able to do that if, he, if you're not like the good students of today, how much effort they put behind their GCSEs and A-levels and where they are in terms of what they want. 
right? That you can do that if you spent that much time behind the Quran and Hadith and, and, and Tafsir, etc., etc., you'd be able to do that as well. So we're in a very strange situation. We're in a very strange situation, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala help us. So he started writing from an early age. He used to write four folios each day, four pages, four large pages each day. Uh, if, if, you, if you take all of his works and you distribute it in his entire life, it'll come to an average of four days, you know, four, four pages a day. Right? And you've got so many of our students, they're writing blogs, just random blogs. If you look at their Twitter accounts, right, they've got 50, 60, 70 followers and they've got like 20,000 messages. Right? You look at their Facebook, same thing, right? long, long things about this, that and the other, but there's nothing else going on. It's all non-substance. And then it just goes. Right? Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah, says about him that when his works were counted, they came to be about 1,000. So he wrote about 1,000 books, large and small, some in many, many volumes, some in just one volume, some smaller treaties. And he, could, he was such a, non, uh, such a scholar of hadith that he could tell the chain of any narration and was able to, uh, was able to grade a hadith from understanding who the narrators were. So he knew the biographies of each of these narrators and transmitters in hadith of muhaddithin and he could, he, could, he could give you an idea. He's a great hadith scholar. He's known for his hadith criticism. And in, in terms of literature, in terms of writing, and as an orator, so he was a master of everything. You know, some people are just very good writers, can't speak well. Some people are very good speakers, but they can't write well. He was both. He could do both, and he had no peer in his literature. In fact, if you study Arabic literature of Baghdad, of the Abbasid times, you will study some of his works, right? Because they are pieces of literature in their own right. However, with all of this, you know, you generally get somebody who just um, is after his work. That's all he's doing. He's got no time for worship. But this was very different with Ibn al-Jawzi. He is known for his piety. He's celebrated for his moral uprightness, his devotion. He used to do one Qur'an khatam. With all of that, he used to do one Qur'an khatam a week. So in seven days, he would be completing a Qur'an with all of this as well. Right? And that, that subhanAllah in itself is a tough thing for many people today. He never, he was also very particular in what he ate. So he never ate anything of doubt. Very particular about what he ate in terms of halal. Ibn al-Najjar mentions that when you saw him praying, his salat, he expressed wilayat, you know, you could see wilayat, uh, being a friend of Allah, being close to Allah, you could see that from his prayers. Ibn al-Farisi says that he used to make tahajjud at night. You know, he was given to making tahajjud night vigils at night, and he was always in the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you can tell this from his books. I'm, I'm going to be reading a selection from, from something he said, which really tells us how his mind worked. And it's quite impressive. He writes himself in his Sayyidul Khatir, he says, from an early childhood, I was inclined to uh, devotion, religious contemplation and worship. I used to zealously observe the obligatory as well as the nafil prayers and all the preferred uh, etikaf, etc. Spending my days like this, I used, to felt, I used to feel a lot of peace and enlightenment. I severely regretted time spent otherwise. For I had an ardent desire to utilize every moment of my life in diligent consciousness of the omnipotent Lord. In those days, I used to find my heart attuned to Allah. 
while my prayers and supplications were a source of indescribable pleasure to me. What a feeling he was getting. May Allah give us some of that feeling. My lectures and discourses, which appear to have been quite effective in those days, attracted a few high officials and chiefs who wanted to come closer to me by paying homage and putting themselves at my service. As it was, I also became inclined towards them. So you got these wealthy people, these influential people, they want to be close to him. So naturally you start feeling inclined to them. Now look at this. But in their company, I lost the sense of peace and sanctifying grace I had enjoyed previously in my du'as, in my supplication. Thereafter, other functionaries of the government started gaining my favor, with the result that the precaution I used to take earlier in avoiding everything unlawful and doubtful even, it began, it gave way to a sense of complacency. I started justifying things. It was not yet too deplorable, but gradually my specious reasoning made even the doubtful appear lawful to me. And I realized that I had now lost the sublimity, the sublimity and the purity of my heart. I started losing my state because of this mixing with this crowd. It seemed instead as if a profaneness had taken its place, which gave rise to restlessness and disquietude in me. I observed that my sermons also bore a mark of my anxiety. And then he says, I then visited the tombs of the pious and earnestly beseeched Allah to show me the right path. So one thing very interesting is that Ibn al-Jawzi is known to be very, one of the most powerful voices we have out there against bid'ah, against innovations. He has Talbis Iblis where he really takes a lot of Sufis to task, a lot of ulama to task. In fact, every category of the ummah, he takes each one to task according to their status and according to the fitness that they had, uh, that, that, they, that they were challenged by. And he is known for this. He's, not, he's known for this. He was a Hanbali scholar, and he was known for that great rigid, rigidity. In fact, uh, in terms of hadith uh, criticism, he is on the extreme end. So uh, when you look at hadith studies and how uh, you have scholars who, have, you know, who mark hadith as being sahih, da'if, hasan, etc., categorize the hadith and so on, uh, you have a corpus of scholars who are known to be too harsh, like uh, away from the path of complete moderation. So in the Ibn al-Jawzi, Ibn Taymiyyah, uh, Ibn Hazm, Zahiri, Dara Qutni, these are a few of the names that come in that. Then when you have some lenient ones like Hakim al-Tirmidhi, Suyuti kind of comes in that as well. But then you have the ones that are considered to be, when they say something, it's very balanced, like Iraqi, Zahabi, Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, Sahabi, etc. Right? So you have that. So although he's known to be kind of on the extreme end of these things, but still, you know, he said, I visited the tombs of the pious and earnestly beseeched Allah to show me the right path. This is in his uh, Sayyidul Khatib. What he means by being there is if there's a pious, righteous person, there's uh, always been a tradition to believe that du'as are accepted, uh, you know, because of being in the, uh, where, where these people are buried. He's not, you're not asking the person of the tomb, right? You're asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but they say that, uh, that this is the belief among many people, right? And it seems like he was also of that belief as well. Ultimately, Allah helped me, and I again felt inclined to spend more of my time in prayer and solicitude. Now I came to know what was wrong with me, and I thanked my Lord, the most compassionate, the merciful, for his kindness. Now that is really something to wonder about. Because we all have these challenges. 
And we, a lot of us have disquietude in our life. A lot of us have restlessness in our life. A lot of us are not satisfied, are not tranquil. We're not peaceful. And most of the time, if not all the time, the reason for this is the wrongs we have involved, uh, we have involved ourselves in, whatever that may be. And he's not even talking about completing, committing haram. He's just talking about just doubtful association, just maybe not being as scrupulous as he would like it. And it takes you away, it demoralizes you. But when you're involved in it so much, you don't even know sometimes. His character and his characteristics, he was known to be well-built, very handsome features, imposing. Um, he was favored with easy circumstances. He wasn't extremely poor, but yet he wasn't so well off either. But he had easy circumstances in general. He possessed a refined taste in his dress as well and his dietary habits. He liked good things as well. And he'll talk about these things afterwards. And he was very charming and graceful to speak to as well. Ibn al-Dini relates that Ibn al-Jawzi was soft-spoken, handsome, modern, uh, moderate height, and he was known for his clemency, his, for, his forbearance generally, and his generosity. He was generally careful of his health, uh, but he liked what may be considered, as he says, good things of temperate quality. So he liked good things. And that's completely fine. He used to advise against the, the, the practice, uh, you know, by some of the extreme practices that had been introduced by the Persian mystics of his time. Now, if we move to uh, his, his knowledge, one special thing about, his, about Ibn al-Jawzi, in which he probably towers above a lot of others, except that you had many individuals who had the similar kind of uh, flexibility and vibrance and extensiveness in the knowledge that they had and in the sciences that they studied. You had quite a few of them. But, uh, you know, from, here, from him, you actually hear this from his, own, uh, from his own pen, right? So one thing about him is that he's very versatile. He towers above his contemporaries and of his time due, his, due to his desire to be well-versed in every branch of faith. Every science, he wanted to master it. He wanted to master every science and learning. He describes this in his own, again, Sayyidul Khatir, he describes this. He says, the greatest trial for mankind lies in the loftiness of his ambitions. So having lofty ambitions is a trial for you. Because having lofty ambi ambitions means, am I going to be able to get this or not? But I, you can't rest either. He says... The higher his ambition, the lofty his aspire, uh, aspiration for advancement or success. However, one is sometimes unable to achieve one's ambition owing to unfavorable circumstances or a lack of means. You want to go to the top universities, you don't have the money to go. Or you don't have the grades to go or whatever it is. It is. However, um, but Allah has made me so ambitious that I've always had a yearning for something even higher. Yet have never felt that Allah Most High might, might not have made me too ambitious. So I don't mind being ambitious. I don't complain about it. But that's how Allah has made me. He says, it is true that life can be fully enjoyed only by a carefree, imprudent and listless person. If you want to enjoy this life, meaning just be totally carefree and just really enjoy it, 
and not care about the hereafter or anything else, not have any worry in the world at all, whether it be for your children, right, or for your family or, or yourself or anybody else, you just want to enjoy, then he says the life can be, uh, uh, can be fully enjoyed only by a carefree, imprudent and listless person, but nobody endowed with brains would ever prefer the retrogression of his intellect simply for the sake of getting more fun out of his worldly pleasures. It's not a very intellectual thing to do, right? Then he says, I know of many people who are boastful of their lofty ambitions. So now he, he's thinking about all of these great people of the past who spoke about lofty aspirations. And he studies their life to try to understand what their, whether they succeeded and if they did, then what was their success? And if they failed, then what was their failure? This is the thing about it. He was very critical in the way he thought. He says that, um, I know of many people who have boasted of their lofty ambitions, but I found their aspirations actually limited to only one field of their activity in which they were ardently desirous of achieving success. So he saw that, yes, they had a lot of ambition, but it was only about one project, or one science, or one subject, or one, one, one thing only. And these people were completely indifferent to their, indi in de uh, their deficiencies in other fields. For example, there's a famous poet called Sharif al-Radi, very famous in Arabic literature, right? Once he said in a couplet, ill health is never without a cause, but in my case, it is because of too high an aspiration. So now that drives Ibn al-Jawzi to go and look into this man to see what he was all about. However, on going through his biographical accounts, I found that he had no ambition than achieving power and position. That's all he wanted, right? It's also related by Abu Muslim al-Khurasani that he could not sleep well during his youth. He had sleepless nights. When asked why, he said, how can I sleep? Brilliant and ambitious though I am, I am condemned to lead a life of poverty and obscurity. So though he was brilliant and he knew it, he just didn't have enough money and he did not have fame. So then what would satisfy you, somebody asked. He said, I'll be satisfied only if I achieve greatness and power. Then try for it. What's wrong? Try for it. He said, this would not be possible without putting my life at stake. So he was cowardly. He, wasn't, he had high aspiration, but he was a bit cowardly in terms of putting himself into things. He was asked again, why don't you do so? My intellect asks me not to run into danger. It's a weird combination, right? What would you do then? The questioner demanded. I would not accept the advice of my intellect, replied. So he's in this dilemma. And finally, um, Ibn al-Jawzi says about him, On giving further thought to this self-deluded yet ambitious man, I came to the conclusion that he had not given thought to one of the most important factors. And that was the question of the life to come. Now the reason why I speak about this is because we all have certain ambitions, whether that be to become the CEO of some company, right? Or whether it be to make this much money, or to become very famous, or to become a star, or to become somebody of great repute, or to somebody who has you know, this much uh, property to his name, or whatever the case may be. Everybody has their little thing. So this example is very good, because this is what he's saying. He said, I came to the conclusion that he has not given thought to one of the most important factors, and that was the question, of the life to come. He was madly seeking political power. 
for which he had to be cruel and unsparing of innocent human life. He just got a fraction of that worldly power and glory eventually, for which uh, the things he aspired to for a short period of only eight years. Thereafter that, he fell victim, because eventually that's what he got for power and fame to a certain degree for eight years. And then after that, he felt vict he fell victim to the tre treachery of the Abbasid Khalif of the time, Safar, the first Abbasid Khalif, the one who took over from the Umayyads, right? The uncle of Abu Ja'far al-Mansur. And then his intellect did not come to his aid. And it was the same with another person, the poet Mutanabbi. How many of you have not heard of Mutanabbi? The great Arabic poet Mutanabbi, who was as ambitious as he was also enamored of worldly success. It's really a lot of thought in this. My ambition, however, is different to theirs, he says. I aspire, now look at what he aspires for. I aspire for a profound knowledge, embracing the entire field of learning, everything. Right, which I know I cannot attain. So he's understanding of that as well. Right, I want to achieve a thorough and complete knowledge of every branch of learning, which is obviously not possible in the short span of human life. I do not consider anybody perfect in the knowledge of a science, so long as he lacks perfection in another branch. And then he goes on to say how. Um, you, you've got scholars of thick who don't know history, so they make some serious blunders. Scholars of hadith who again don't know history, so they'll connect two people together and they don't know. So he points all of these things out. That's why he says you can't be complete in one science if you don't know the sciences that are related to it. So he wants to know all of them. Then he says, the imperfection of knowledge, I think, can be attributed to lack of ambition alone. Not only that, to me the ultimate object, uh, objective of knowledge is an ability to act on it. So it's very particular about not it being just academic, but for it being practical for his uh, hereafter. Thus, what I want to be able to combine with my knowledge is the diligence of Bishr al-Hafi and the piety of Ma'roof al-Karhi. So it's not like, okay, I want to be academic and I'll just make my salat sometime and I'll go for hajj and I'll do this and that and other. But no, both in terms of his great aspirations for what kind of knowledge he wants, he has similar ambitions in terms of his wilayat and closeness to Allah. So he wants to be no less than Bishr al-Hafi and Ma'roof Karhi, some of the greatest of our ascetics of the past. Now that's ambition. But it is hardly possible to accomplish this along with the preoccupations of studying and teaching and the other mundane affairs. And that is not all. I also aspire to oblige others but do not want to live under their obligation. My preoccupation with my studies is an impediment in the way of my earnings. When I love my studies, I can't earn enough. Every scholar, aspiring scholar, in fact every Muslim should read this passage. This is, I think, one of the best passages that I've read from him. Because he really puts it together and he really puts the cherry on the top at the end. So wait for that. He says, it's hardly, you know, you can hardly do all of these things. Um, because uh, you're not going to get your earning, but I detest being indebted to anybody or accepting gifts from others. I also ardently desire to have children, and he had many children. Uh, one of his daughters' name was Sharaful Nisa, another one was Johara. He had four sons, and um, he had problems with one of his sons. He had problems with one of his sons, and to, for him, he wrote an entire small book called Laftatul Kabid. Uh, 
uh, which is to try to bring him back because his son was a very, and he was a very promising scholar. His son became a very promising scholar. But then after that, he went in the wrong direction, got hooked with the wrong type of people. So this can happen to people, right? Even in those days, he got hooked with the wrong kind of people and he went off track and started, I mean, doing some strange things. So then he did write this entire book to him to explain all of these things to him. And um, he, he, I think it was his youngest son that actually served him the most. So he had four sons at least and he had a number of daughters. So he says here that I ardently also desire to have children. So he's not like that mad scientist in, you know, in a laboratory, right? Uh, a university professor. The only thing he worries about is studying and he goes home at 12, 1 o'clock at night and you know, his marriages don't last because he has no time for anybody else. He's not like that either. You know, he's got a functioning family. This is what Islam should do for you, right? That not take you into excess in anything, whatever that may be. So I too desire to have children as well as to be an author of merit and distinction so that these may honor my memory. And truly they have. And truly they have. Subhanallah. Um, but both of these pursuits stand in the way of solitude and contemplation. I want to spend some time just with Allah. But then this goes in against that. I also like to enjoy lawful pleasures but do not possess the means of achieving them all. You know, going out on holidays and that, like people like to do today, you know, things of that nature. Whatever his idea was. And if I devote myself to obtaining them, then I would generally lose contentment and peace of mind. So, too, with other matters. For example, I like the delicacies and refinement which my good taste desires. All these mean to aspire for mutually opposing ends. What have they to do with such lofty ideals who aspire simply for worldly success, wealth, power and position? I too want worldly success, but in a manner that does not cause me to impair my faith or to expose my learning or virtuous actions to any risk or injury. He's got it right. You have to give preference to certain things. There's always going to be choices in this life to make. What are you going to give preference for? You know, I travel a lot and I get, and I'm from a business-minded family and I see so many opportunities, but I have to pull myself back that, no, I've got a different path. I know if I get involved in there, I can't do what I want to do in, ter in terms of learning, study and uh, teaching, etc. So you just have to give it up. There's sacrifices that you have to make, right? And then he says, who can appreciate the restlessness of my ambition? On the one hand, I relish the hajjid at night, taking precaution, taqwa. But on the other hand, I have an inclination towards the cultivation of knowledge, teaching and writing, and the acquisition of appropriate foods for the body. None of this is possible without occupying the heart. Interaction with people and educating them is also necessary. But on the other hand, when the sweetness of supplication in seclusion and intimate discourse with the divine is diminished this creates much grief and sorrow this creates much grief and sorrow spiritual decline is unbearable for me but making ends meet for my dependence stands in the way of my spiritual progress i have endured these strains all through my life and submitted to the will of allah i guard myself against every defilement and I take care that not a single moment of my life is spent in any vain efforts. And this is his final point. 
He says, glory be to Allah if I succeed in my endeavors. I won't mind if I fail, however. For the Messenger وسلم, has said that the intention of the faithful is better than his action. That is so wonderful. That is just so wonderful. That after talking about this dilemma, juggling all of these ambitions and all of these challenges and obstacles in life, he says, well, at least I have the, um, I have the intention. And that is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will eventually deal with us for because that's where we're going. Now you can understand how they say, actions are according to intentions is supposed to be one of the fundamental narrations among all the narrations that we have. Our deen relies on it, is based on it because everything is according to intention. Now this is extremely eye-opening. This is extremely, extremely motivational. So do not have less ambition. Amb have lots of ambition. Aspire, aspire, aspire. Have high himmah. You may not be able to do everything at the end of it, but as long as you've got the pious intentions and you try for your piety, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will help. Because really, that's a different world then. You may not get what you want in this world, but you'll get greater in the hereafter. That is one of the most important things that you can learn from him. His sermons were very powerful. He used to... He was in Baghdad, as you know, which was the Darul Khilafah. It had some of the best minds of the Muslim Ummah of the time. Because people would come from all over. You know, like people come to study in some of the top universities of the world. So Baghdad had the Nidhamiya, uh, the Nidhamiya College. And it had numerous other scholars. And in his lectures, regularly speaking, regularly speaking, how many people? 10 to 15,000. That was the norm. And that's not difficult. In Baghdad, it's not difficult. Right? In the sense that you've got a whole Muslim uh, city. Right? But still 10 to 15,000 people as a norm in your lectures. There must be something in your lectures uh, to bring them like that. That was just minimum. Many times it would be 100,000. Now how do you expect, people to, how do you expect somebody to speak to 100,000 people in those days? There's no microphone. There's no system like that. I remember we were in Mina, and we had what, uh, about 150 men and 150 women, right, uh, 300 people approximately. And if we didn't have the microphone, it'd be very difficult to get everybody, you know. But they had a system in those days that there would generally be people sitting all around you. It wouldn't just be necessarily one way. It could be that there's people sitting all around you, and it'd be silent because there's no noise pollution. Today we have a lot of noise pollution, you know, the, the ACs are on and this is on and that is on and, you know, there's just calmness. Your voice will carry further anyway. But still 100,000 people, so they, in some places they had mustamilis, which are people sitting, you know, like we have mukabbirin in salat, where the imam says Allahu Akbar and somebody says Allahu Akbar. So you have somebody maybe conveying the knowledge like that. But there must have been some ajib, whatever it was, for somebody to speak uh, to 100,000 people. And then for them to even come, even though there is no speaker system. We're always complaining when, and, you know, generally our masjids and our places generally have problems with the microphone. Alhamdulillah, this place hasn't so far. Alhamdulillah, you know. Um, he was a very eloquent speaker. Uh, his sermons, they just breathed a, like a tragic urgency in his message, which really brought the people up. It touched the hearts of his audiences. And it said that 
he has aided in the conversion of at least 20,000 Christians and Jew, Jews to Islam in those days. 20,000 people he must have converted in those days. He aided in, the, in that. And in terms of just people giving up bad life to become really good people, 100,000 people at least took the solemn pledge to lead, lead a virtuous life after listening to his, uh, after listening to his sermons. Ibn al-Jawzi has produced a number of great works. That's what he's, today he's known through his books. So he's got some wonderful books. One of them is called the Kitab al-Mawdu'at, which is a collection of all the hadiths that generally people may quote or found in books and so on, but they're fabricated narrations. They're spurious narrations, they're made-up narrations. So he's was a great, very critical hadith scholar, right? So his Kitab al-Mawdu'at is used quite, uh, uh, quite uh, uh, in a widespread fashion today. And his other book, which is very famous, is called the Talbis Iblis. We don't have time to go into depth about it, but I believe Talbis Iblis has also been translated into English. And that just discusses the vices of different um, classes of society. So vices among business people, vices among scholars, vices among Sufis, vices among the common folk, vices among leaders, rulers, kings, and he just deals with it in a very open way. He's very critical, right? He's known for being very critical and very harsh. Right? And you have to take everything with a pinch of salt because he's known to be extreme in, in cases. I mean, many of the scholars later have said that he's quite extreme, but there is still a lot to be gained from that. You know, there is still a lot to be gained from that. He has critiqued scholars and administrators in his, uh, his Talbis Iblis. Uh, I mean, I've got passages, but I'm not going to uh, go through all of them. He's. Um, I'll just, I'll just quote one thing from about what he says about uh, scholars and their lack of sincerity. He says, if the students of any scholar leave their teacher to sit at the feet of another teacher, more learned and reputed than him, he feels a burning in his heart that does not befit a sincere scholar. Jealousy that we're speaking about. Sincere scholars and teachers are like physicians who should treat people simply to secure Allah's pleasure and contentedly give their blessings to any other physician who is able to cure that patient for them. That's why one of my teachers, he says, look, you're in London, he's in another city. He says, we're working together. If you're working hard and I support you, then you are doing the work that I'm doing. One person can't do it all. We need, there, there, there's enough to go around essentially. There's enough of a congregation to go around. Subhanallah. So there should be no reason for somebody else being more popular and you being uh, uh, feeling jealous about that should be no reason whatsoever because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you're complaining about Allah's allotment to that person just ask Allah for tawfiq he points out some weak, uh, weakness of the rulers and administration he says besides their persistence in their wrongful ways they also ardently desire to pay a visit to some pious and godly figure for the purpose of seeking his blessings in their favor. This is talking about Muslim communities. Now even today in the Muslim countries that we have, some, they just don't care. But in other countries, in some countries, some leaders, Muslim leaders, they do have this tradition of inviting the scholars together, sitting with them, even if it's for whatever it may be, asking for their advice maybe doing whatever they want afterwards, but at least asking for their advice and nasiha and things like that. And there's, there's some barakah in that. That's why generally the countries which do that and they have respect for that, I've seen that there's some barakah in that place generally. The people love their, 
their scholar. I mean, I don't, I don't like to take names today, but there's one country that I have in mind when, when I visited. From the scholars to the common person on the streets, they all had good things to say about their leader. So not all Muslim leaders are bad. I know this has kind of become some kind of stereotype or something, you know, Muslim leaders, we think, and we think they're fair game to just talk about. But they're not all like that. So then what he's saying is that what you have is some people, they will go to scholars just to feel good factor. To feel that that's their way of salvation. They do all the wrongs they want, then they just go to some scholars and, or pious people and sit with them. So he says, the devil has led them to believe that the solemn invocations of divine blessings by a godly person will lighten the burden of their sins. Now he's saying this in a time when he's living in that society, under their rule, right? And then he says, this is not so. Once a trader whose transport filled with trade goods had been withheld by a tax collector, he went to the venerated master Malik ibn Dinar, right, and requested his help. Malik ibn Dinar went to that collector, right, on behalf of that businessman whose things had been confiscated uh, unjustly, right. He went to talk to him. Now Malik ibn Dinar is well known and well respected. When he went to the collector, he treated him respectfully. And he, the collector said to him, why did you have to come yourself? You could have just said, I, am, I want to see you and I would have come to you. Look at the respect he gives him. Thereafter, um, he spoke to him about the goods and everything. And the official asked Malik ibn Dinar to make dua for him. This is what Malik ibn Dinar then said to him. He said, ask this purse in which you keep your ill-gotten money to pray for you. Tell your bank balance to pray for you. Right? How can I invoke blessings for you when countless people curse you? All these people are cursing you and you want my dua? What's my dua going to do for you? Do you think that Allah will accept the entreaties of a single individual in preference to the prayers of a thousand others that are praying against you? Now, this is not being harsh. This is being clear. If a person comes to a scholar or to anybody with regret, remorse, wants to do tawbah, wants to change his life, then yes, pray for that person. You understand? You're praying for that person. But this is what Ibn al-Jawzi, he quotes his story and he, and he mentions this, which is in, in his critique of the masses, right, to the, for, for us generally, he says, Satan has misled the masses to believe that attending religious sermons, religious talks, and raising a wail or, vo or, or raising a wail or a woe at our highly uh, meritorious acts, you know, when you cry in a bayan or something like that, and the sole purpose of delivering such sermons. This is perhaps because the people have been told about the merits of listening to these discourses, but they do not know that their aim is should be reformation of their own souls and rectification of their behavior. Nor do they appear to be aware that whatever they listen to in these lectures shall be cited as evidence against them on the Day of Judgment. And this is speaking about the people who even go. Can you imagine what he'd be saying about us? We don't even go. You know, out of a whole city, how many people turn up to a program? Right, do you understand? So these are people who are actually even making some kind of effort. But you see, he was dealing with his society. And there is this tradition sometimes. Some, in some places, there's a tradition to carry a tasbih with you in, in some communities, in some countries. You see, everybody's got a tasbih, and I don't know if they read anything on it, but they carry these tasbih as part of the gear, right? It's just nice to, uh, to have that. I personally, he says, I personally know people 
who have been attending such lectures for a number of years. They get excited in hearing these sermons and burst into tears. But they persist in accepting interest, cheating others in their trade, remaining unmindful of religious duties. They'll miss prayers at other times and disobeying their parents. But they're in every lecture there is. Satan has led them to believe that their presence at these sermons, their lamentations and fits of crying, will atone for their neglected duties and the sins of omission and commission. They, there are also others who think that accompanying a pious and godly man or paying visits to them shall be enough to expiate their sins. Then we go to his Sayyidul Khatir. I've already read you a few, to, uh, a few points from his Sayyidul Khatir. What Sayyidul Khatir is, is essentially like a blog, a modern form of Twitter, Facebook, all put together, but very substantial. So they, they're just these um, really disjointed thoughts. Uh, he writes, some, some, some of them are two pages long, some half page, some a few liners. And what he's doing essentially is that he's looking at things. And like people do today, they find a nice shoe in the, in the window of a store. Oh, look at that nice shoe and they send you a picture. Well, his is a bit different. His is not like that, right? Um, some people say, oh, look at the food today. You know, all these kind of weird things that people post on Twitter and Facebook and just try to pass their time and fill up their pages, right? And get likes. His is obviously not like that. His is like a substantial, substantial benefits in what he says. In there, he's frankly admitting his mistakes, how he used to think about something, and then he found out it was a delusion from the shaitan, he shouldn't have thought about that. He is very open, and this really, really helps anybody who wants to really understand their deen, and especially scholars, anybody in general, to really understand, because we go through these kind of dilemmas. The dilemmas we go through about righteousness, about haq and batil, about halal and haram, although our uh, things we're dealing with have changed, but the dilemma and the morality there is still generic, it's still the same in, in all human beings. You know, we are the same regardless of where we, you know, regardless of when we appear in this world in terms of that. So, he speaks about his own mental and emotional states, his social experiences, and he relates the wisdom that he learns from certain trials and tribulations, the rough and tumble of life. Uh, his dealings with, uh, with others, his dealings with women, with other friends, with uh, servants, uh, with the rich, and, and so on and so forth. Um, the outstanding feature of this book, I don't think it's been translated, right? but the outstanding feature of this book is its immaculate sincerity and simplicity. And it's also literature, his writing style and so on. On one occasion he says that I saw two laborers. So you know there's a construction going on. And he sees two laborers picking up a large beam. And while they're picking it up, he says that I saw them singing. You know, they're singing something while they're picking it up. So for us, big deal, you know. But what he did was he thought about it. Why are they singing? You know, why are they singing? Why do you think two people picking up something heavy will be singing? Right? Something to think about. Okay, I'll give you the answer to this one. But you should think about these things. Right? Then you can become an Ibn Josie, okay? How old are you now? Eight. You're eight. Very good. You still got time. <laughs> right? We're, we're losing our time. You still got time, inshallah. Okay? So, he says that by singing, the laborers make their work easier. 
On further reflection, he, he says, I thought that if they did not do so, they would have a greater consciousness of their exertion. Their mind will be on the weight. On further reflection, I found that by engaging themselves in singing, the minds of the laborers get a little respite. Because everything is connected to the mind. They busy themselves in another mental work for a short duration, thus they refresh themselves. The diversion also decreases the consciousness of the burden by drawing their attention away from the exertion of their work. And that's why then he says, My attention was diverted from this scene to the burden of responsibilities and obligations of the sharia that we have. I thought that perhaps the consciousness of these obligations constitutes a very heavy burden on man. You know, I have to do this, I have to pray this, I have to keep 30 fast, this, that and the other. It's a, it is a burden at the end of the day. Right? It is a mental burden that we have to do things and be careful and don't eat from here. You know, don't dress like this, don't show this, don't do this, don't speak like this. We have all of these burdens. So he says that I arrived at a conclusion that one should cover the path of endurance by giving oneself necessary respite and by allowing the consciousness to refresh itself by yielding to lawful pleasures. So there's some people who get so extreme in their worship that they have no time for anything else. I've spent so many years messing around. Now I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. No, they should. Halal entertainment is allowed. Right? Another story he says is a story about Bishr al-Hafi. Another one of the great ascetics of the past. He was going somewhere with a friend. The friend became thirsty. And he asked Bishop to wait a bit so that he could go and find water in a well somewhere. Now, taking that detour, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever it is, it's going to take time off your journey. So instead of that, what Bishop said to him was, wait until we get to the next well. Because they know that there was a well in this area, there's a well in that area. You have to kind of take a detour. It's like this service station. Do we stop at this one? Do we stop at the next one? No, let's do the next one. Let's do the next one. Right? After they had a covered a considerable distance, Bishop told his friend that the life in this earthly world is also a journey which can be completed in the similar manner with the difficulties. Right? In truth, whoever is aware of the fact alluded by Bishop will console himself, cheer it up when it's in distress and assure it of lowering the burdens so that it may bear the weight of its responsibilities. If you start taking too many holidays, Every holiday you come, your children get used to it, and now they want you to take off in spring and in Christmas, uh, you know, the winter holidays. And uh, if you don't go in summer as well, they say, we haven't been anywhere. Man, you just went in spring, you just went in April, right? Subhanallah. So we get spoiled. Now tell them to compare themselves with others in their school who probably haven't even been out of the, the city, you know. But this is what it is, we get spoiled sometimes. Another pious master of the past, Bayezid al-Bistami, once said, I used to lead, and this is very important, this one. I used to lead my wailing self, flooded with tears, tears towards Allah. I used to force it to go to Allah. I used to be crying. No, you have to wake up at night. You have to do this dhikr. You have to spend this, uh, this number of hours. I used to lead my wailing soul, flooded with tears towards Allah. Then it gradually became familiar with the way. And then began to forge ahead cheerfully. So you have to do things difficultly with difficulty first. You think it's just going to come easy? It's just going to be like that? No, Allah wants to test us. So this is a wonderful statement. It should, so Ibn al-Jawzi says, 
it should thus be remembered that it is absolutely necessary to console and enliven the self so that it may bear its burden patiently. He speaks a lot to himself, not outwardly like a madman, but he writes a lot about his conversations. I'm going to uh, try to read to you at least one of these conversations because they're very helpful. Uh, for example, he says once, once I acted on a legal opinion, on a, on a fatwa, right, uh, which was upheld by certain schools of jurisprudence, but rejected by others. Meaning some said it was okay, but others said no. We have this dilemma all the time, all right? I've, I acted upon it, meaning I took the lenient view. However, I felt uneasiness in my heart. See, this is a sound heart. It will feel uneasy about these things. It caused me great spiritual contraction. I felt as if I was rejected from the divine court. And anger was showered down upon me. With a deepening sense of loss and sullenness, I felt as if my own self was asking me, now he's talking to himself. You didn't act against the, you didn't really act against the advice of the jurists. I mean, there's muftis who have given that fatwa. What's your problem? I mean, these are learned people. We hear this all the time today, right? They're also learned people. You can't, you know, they're, they're people of taqwa as well. They have their studies. Why then? So his self is telling him, you didn't act against the advice of these jurists. Why then is there this feeling of deprivation? So then I replied, Oh, my nafs, my, my nafs amara, my insinuating self. I have two answers to your questions. First, you turned aside from the teaching of your own school, right, the Hanbali school. If you had been asked to pronounce a legal opinion on this question, if you'd been asked a fatwa from somebody else, you would not have advised them to do this. Um, so then he says, I wouldn't have acted on it, interjected the self, if I had not considered it lawful. You know, because that's the self telling him, but I only did it because it's still halal. You know, it may have been makru or whatever it is, right? But it may have been halal. We're not talking about halal haram. We're talking about better or not better here in this case. I replied, no, you would not even advise others to act likewise. You would not have allowed others to do that. And the second reason I added is that you should be happy over the gloom you have experienced. For had you not been already favored with illumination, you would not have felt this loss. The reason why you're feeling bad about this, of doing some makru like this, is because you've had illumination before. Now that light has dimmed in your heart. So that's why you're feeling bad. So you should be happy anyway. Don't try to justify it. You should be happy, right? And then he says, but I dislike the gloom coming over me, replied the self. <laughs> this self is acting on both sides. Says, then you should make up your mind to give up the disputed act. I said, you think that he has made lawful. You think that it has been made lawful through consensus of opinion. Still, you should decide to renounce it simply out of the fear of Allah. Then he says, the self was then saved from spiritual decline and gloominess after it had acted so. So this is a personal dilemma that he speaks about, which we can find a lot of benefit in. Ibn al-Jawzi really, really liked to study the biographies of others. That's why he says that to benefit from others, you need to read their biographies. You learn a lot about their the way they're leading their life. Because what essentially the pious people are, are practical role models of what the Quran and Sunnah is. If you want to see how Quran and Sunnah is lived out, 
right? You read the biographies of the pious individuals and you see how they process these ahadith and Quranic injunctions and lead their life with the challenges that they have. That's how we can benefit from it. If you've just got raw Quran and hadith that you're trying to learn from, that is inspirational, but then this should go with it just to give us some supplementary practical knowledge of it. That's why he wrote uh, in-depth biographies of Hassan Basri, Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, Sufyan al-Thawri, Ibrahim ibn Adham, Bishr al-Hafi, Ahmed ibn Hanbal, and Ma'roof Karhi. Some of our biggest people of that time. In addition to this, he also wrote a, a four-volume compendium called Sifat al-Safwa. Sifat al-Safwa. It's four volumes of the lives of starting from Sahaba and then down of the great people. And uh, what this book is really is that there's a person before him, Abu Nu'im al-Isbahani, who wrote the Hilyatul Awliya. Hilyatul Awliya. This was a much more extensive, uh, you can say, biographies and uh, heart-rending stories of the great people of the past. However, it was filled with quite a few weak narrations and so on. So Ibn al-Jawzi, he's done this also with this book, where he's kind of summarized it and taken what he thought was the, the, you know, the, the, the sahih part of it. He's also done the same thing uh, with Imam Ghazali's Ihya Ulum al-Din. He's written, uh, the, uh, I forget the name of it, is it the Minhaj al-Qasideen or something like that, uh, an abbreviated version. So he loved the book, but then he realized that according to him that there were some issues in there, so he tried to do that. Another thing he mentions in his Sayyid al-Khatib, you know I mentioned that he was a great orator. So at one point in time, he started thinking that his speech was all artificial. That the reason why he has all of these crowds is because of the style of words, his rhetoric, his poetry that he, uh, that he includes. And uh, he, he thinks it's not from the heart and it's just artificial. Because he says people are coming to listen to the words. So it's all artificial. So he gave up doing that for a while. He used to do some simple like speeches uh, without using any speech techniques. And he realized that then he started thinking further. And he said, no, this was a wrong move to have made. This is shaitan making me feel like that. Because at the end of the day, sincerity is what matters. Sincerity is what matters. Yes, if a person is doing this artificial stuff in a premeditated way just to invite people, but he doesn't have any sincerity, then it's wrong. But if his main thing is sincerity. And similarly, he says that more than once, many times over the course of his life, he felt like giving up working with the people, teaching, and resign his life to seclusion, resign his life to meditation. But again, he thought for a very long time, and he won himself over by arguing with himself that it seems like this was a suggestion hinted at by shaitan, who did not like to see the thousands of people who would be carried away by his eloquence towards a path of moral and spiritual reformation. Ibn al-Jawzi, finally, he dies on a Friday night, 597 Hijri, which was 12,001. So you, you can put that in perspective about 800 years ago. 
the entire population, over, over, over 8,000 years obviously, the entire population of Baghdad suspended its work to attend its funeral prayer. That's big. That's big. Because you know Baghdad was so big that when the Tatars came about a century or two later, they killed in Baghdad alone a million people. They killed in Baghdad alone a million people. Right? So can you imagine how many people were there? Right? So when we're talking, giving you that understanding, and it says in Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal some centuries before, to his funeral came 800,000 people and 60,000, no, 40,000 women. Women don't generally go out for janaza, but they felt moved to come out. 40,000 women and 800,000 people. That's nearly a million people came out for his. Now in this case, Baghdad is bigger now. Imam Ahmad's Baghdad, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal passed away in around 256 or something of that nature, around that time, 240 something, right? So we're talking about good 250 years, uh, uh, 300, 350 years afterwards. Baghdad was big at this time. This is the Abbasid Baghdad, right? Uh, and the entire population of Baghdad suspended its work and the janazah was held at the Grand Mosque of Mansur. It was a memorable day, says in the city. Numerous people were just found crying, weeping for the departed teacher. Because if 100,000 people used to come, you can tell his popularity. He would have had, I don't know how many million Twitter supporters and Facebook you know, friends. and you know, you know what I mean in terms of today's uh, way of looking at these things. It was Ramadan and the historians report that quite a few inhabitants of Baghdad spent their entire night for the rest of the month at his grave offering prayers and reciting the Quran for the peace of his soul. That's true recognition. That after somebody goes, somebody is still willing to make dua for them. That's really what matters. And if it wasn't for all of that, why would we be sitting here speaking about him? He is not some kind of obscure person that I dug out of history. He is well known. An absolute inspiration. Unfortunately, we don't have the time to go into much more of his life, but every, every book of his is, is, is wonderful in that sense. He was a Hanbali, as I mentioned, he was a Hanbali scholar. But Alhamdulillah, he was protected from the extreme of some of the other Hanbali scholars of his time. In terms of the sifat of Allah, in terms of the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In fact, he wrote a book called Daf'u Shubah Tashbih, which speaks about, and it's actually been translated into English as well, uh, the attributes of God, I think it's called. It speaks about how the other scholars of his own school at the time went into excesses about the way they dealt with the sifat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he points out their problems and so on and so forth how the tajseem, the corporalism and the, the, the anthropomorphism that was going on rife at the time he was a very balanced in that sense yes he's known for his extreme uh, critic, uh, cr uh, his critique and uh, his criticism and his, the way he, his hadith uh, judgment is but subhanallah the amount of knowledge that he has brought together he has al-muntazam uh, al-muntazam which is this uh, voluminous work on the hadith scholars right i didn't speak about that uh, in in too much depth and in there he has collected the stories the biographies of numerous individuals that if you're a hadith scholar you you could use this book to understand who the narrators are he's uh, as i said this great man may allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless him May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless the city that he was from because Baghdad is unfortunately suffering today. Suffering today, suffering today. 
And we have so many great people who have been buried in Baghdad alone. So many great people from Ma'roof al-Karhi to Imam Azam Abu Hanifa to Ahmad ibn Hanbal to uh, numerous, numerous other Abdul Qadir Jilani, numerous people. And unfortunately today it's not safe. It's not safe. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bring back, uh, bring back the kalima la ilaha illallah uh, and let it be elevated and grant peace and understanding uh, to, to the people who are there.